0: Good evening, everyone, and thank you very much for coming. It's great to see a lot of people um, here tonight. And thank you very much, John, for joining us. Again, My pleasure. And it's, it's great to have you. Thank you. Um, the way this is going to work this evening is we'll start with a brief Q&A between me and John, and then I'll open up the floor for audience questions. There are people with microphones about, so if you wait for that to get to you, to so make sure we can get your question heard. So, so just off the bat, um... What was your motivation for going into politics and then subsequently being Speaker of the House?
1: Well, first of all, thank you very much indeed for having me. Thank you for the warmth and generosity of that welcome. And perhaps I can just be forgiven, Christopher, for asking, can you hear me, I say, looking randomly at the woman in my immediate line of vision, at the back? Can you hear me at the back? Well, I'm grateful to you both for signalling that you can do so and for appearing not entirely distraught about the fact that you can hear me. And I do want to say to you, just as our little secret within these four walls, that that response, that you can hear me with a smile, represents a notable improvement on the last occasion on which I was asked that (laughs) self-same question. I said to the audience, can you hear me at the back? to which some unhelpful wag replied, yes, but I'll happily change places with someone who can't. (laughs) So the fact that you can hear me is very encouraging. What caused me to want to go into politics? I'm really brutally honest about it. I think at the time, I had a very keen sense of personal ambition. In a general sense, I wanted to be a good MP and to do good work, and be a good representative. But if I look back at my young self, can I in all honesty say, as politicians often do and frequently mean, that I was overridingly preoccupied with the interests of the country? I don't think I was. I think I was mainly keen to get up and get on and advance my cause. I think the longer I was there, Christopher, the more I came to think about my constituency and the constituents and the causes that mattered to them and to me, to my party, to the country. So I think I started off, in a funny sort of way, less idealistic and more self-seeking. And the longer I was there, I became more idealistic and more preoccupied with the country. Why did I want to be Speaker? the very short answer to that question is that I didn't want to be a minister, I didn't think I would be a very good minister, and I didn't think I had much chance of being asked for a variety of reasons, you can probe if you wish, by David Cameron to be a minister. But I suppose I was sufficiently ambitious, egocentric, call it what you will, to think well I enjoy being an ordinary MP. But I've always loved Parliament, I've loved debate, I've loved the concept of fair exchange, debating points of view, hearing everybody, and I think I could do something more than be a backbencher. And if a vacancy, or the vacancy for Speaker, arises, and I've got a reasonable shot at it. In other words, if I judge that I've got a reasonable chance of not disgracing myself in the vote, but of getting a decent vote, then I'm inclined to go for it. And the, Truth of the matter is that I had somebody on the Conservative side inquiring who might support me and someone on the Labour side asking, well, might you support John? And those people reported back to me not that I was in any sense certain to win but that I had a decent chance of winning and that I would certainly get a substantial vote. And so I resolved to have a go. And the reality is that from the back end of 2004... I had decided that I'd like one day to be speaker and I got the chance in 2009 and I've never regretted it. Uh, if you do regret it, there's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> I cannot help you, but I gave it my best shot. Do you think
0: it's quite common for politicians to enter, as you did, sort of self-ambition and then become more ideological? Or do you actually think that's quite rare?
1: <sighs> it's very difficult to know because those aren't conversations even though you might think they should take place, that do. I think most of us in politics tend to say we're in it for the public good, and to be fair, we think that we are. But I don't see any point in coming to the Cambridge Union and doing this session without being scrupulously honest to a fault. Utterly candid. And I'm retired from politics. I could come along and say, oh, well, I was always overridingly motivated by the pursuit of the public good. But you asked me the question, why did I want to become an MP? I was ambitious, I enjoyed debate, I liked the cut and thrust of argument, I had strong views, and I also thought, well, I could do a really good job and I'd like to get on. I think it's always a mistake to say you're in a category of one. I think that would be very presumptuous and arrogant. I'm sure there are other people who have become more idealistic as they've gone on. I don't think it's right in this context to name names, particularly where conversations have been very personal, but I can think of one member I knew, a Labour member, who served in the government whips office, and he was what you would call an adherent of the thuggery rather than charm school of whipping. That is to say, he was inclined to get people through the division lobby in support of the Labour government, not by being frightfully charming or telling people how capable they were and how he'd very much like to be able to recommend them for promotion if only they felt able to come through the lobby with the government tonight. And most unfortunate, because you're such a capable person, if I have to tell the Prime Minister that, regrettably, you weren't prepared to support him or her tonight. No, this chap was more... Inclined almost to grab you by the lapels and try to frog march you through the lobby. He didn't do it to me because I wasn't a Labour member, but I saw the way he operated. He eventually got sacked from the government whips office because there was a change of regime and several whips were removed at once. And this guy reinvented himself as an absolutely dedicated, principled and assiduous backbencher who having for years not been much bothered about the rights of parliament. You understand, students, he was a member of the executive, he was a member of the government as a government whip. Government whips just want to get the business through, they're not really interested in the niceties of parliamentary procedure, other than how they can be manipulated to serve the government. This fellow reinvented himself and became very concerned about the rights of parliament. Now, was that conversion or that transformation authentic and wholesale? It absolutely was. It absolutely was. He was a very genuine guy. And I remember once saying to him, you know, your approach has changed. And he said, John, I was in the machine. I quite enjoyed being a part of the machine. Once I was kicked out of the machine, I decided to have a kind of midlife rethink and do things rather differently. So I wouldn't say I'm alone, but I think probably I'm slightly odd in saying... Well, actually, I'm slightly odd in all sorts of ways we have got time to go into that. But I'm probably slightly odd in saying that I started off, you know, with rampant ambition and in the end became much more concerned about whether what I was doing was good for the country or not.
0: Yeah, you touched on a little bit there, but when you were younger, um, I think it's fair to say your, your views were different from what they are today. Um, I think you described them as boneheaded before. And one of those was about the repatriation of immigrants. So do you think that the government's Rwanda policy is also boneheaded?
1: I think the government's immigration policy is extremely misguided, and I think it's very unpleasant. And it pains me to see the government implementing a policy which is neither effective nor fair. It is absolutely true, Christopher, you should pay tribute to your president. He's done his homework. He's prepared well for this role of interlocuteur tonight. By background, I was very right-wing in my youth, partly influenced by my late father, but I have to take some ownership of my own political journey. And as you say, I was rabidly anti-immigration in the early 1980s. Though, if you believe, students, in the Rehabilitation of Offenders Act of 1974, the title of which explains its purpose and content, I hope you will regard me as forgiven, as I did resign from the Immigration Committee of the Right Wing Monday Club in February 1984, having ceased to have anything to do with it 12 months before. So it's almost 40 years ago. And I take, I suppose, what you would call a liberal position on immigration. My view is, for what it's worth, immigration has been overwhelmingly a positive for the country, not a negative. It's done much more good for us than it's done harm. And I am genuinely saddened to see successive Conservative Home Secretaries taking what I regard as a populist, reactionary, negative and damaging approach both to the subject of immigration and, for that matter, to that of asylum. These are big problems that cannot be tackled by one country acting alone. The phenomenon of people fleeing persecution, war, disadvantage, diabolical, tyrannical, sometimes treacherous regimes that commit terrible acts of misdeed against their own people. And it is natural that in those circumstances people flee from persecution and seek safe haven. And traditionally this country has had a reputation for giving sanctuary to such people and for an attitude of care, concern and commitment. And I feel that's gone out of the window in recent times. As far as immigration is concerned, you can't have unlimited immigration. Of course there have to be controls on immigration. But I must say I do very strongly object to some of the rhetoric of the tabloid press in particular. I think they've got a lot to answer for, the Daily Mail, the Daily Fail, as I call it, the Daily Express, and so on. I've got very unpleasant attitudes to these matters. And, you know, I regard it as most unfortunate, let me put it like that most unfortunate that the current Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, takes the stance that she does. It may play well with the Conservative Party conference or the Conservative grassroots, but that's a very different thing from being either right or fair.
0: So why is then the Rwanda policy government policy? Is it because Rishi Sunak is a weak Prime Minister or is it because
1: he actually believes in it? I think he probably believes in it himself. I think he's also hemmed in by a very divided party of which the more vociferous part is stridently right-wing. Do I think Rishi Sunak himself is the most stridently right-wing representative of that genre? I don't. He was, if you like, in the recent leadership contest, the more moderate, reasonable, candidate, but the Conservative Party isn't moderate or reasonable, it is rabidly right-wing, it is unrecognisable from the Conservative Party of the 1980s. People often talk about Margaret Thatcher as being a very right-wing leader, and of course I knew Margaret Thatcher and she was a right-wing leader and she was a very controversial figure, but by comparison with the modern Conservative Party, Mrs Thatcher could be very pragmatic and reasonable at times, and I'm sorry to say I think the Conservative Party has become more and more and more abrasive, ideological, right-wing, and reactionary, and the Rwanda policy is an example of that, but there are other examples of that. As well, And I think it's a great pity Rishi Sunak would have to answer for himself as to why he takes the stance that he does. I regard him as a personable individual. I always got on with him perfectly well when we were in the House together. I knew him for four and a half years. He's actually quite a capable guy. I have to say to you students, I do not get the impression that this is a prime minister who is in command of his own government. I don't get the impression he's in command of his own government. I get the impression of a man who is the hapless prisoner of his own massively divided and increasingly stridently right-wing party. And I must apologise to you, Christopher, and to all members of this audience for being so gentle, softly spoken, and understated about this matter. But I'm doing my best to overcome my natural shyness and reticence and to tell you what I really think. I regard it as a positively shaming indictment, after nearly 40 years, 40 years involvement in politics, if I go to an audience and they say, well, trouble is they know what he said, I couldn't hear them. (laughs) I've never normally had that problem.
0: Yeah, it's my problem, not yours. Um, So do you think that Rishi is capable of changing the Conservative Party, or can it even change? Or is it too gone?
1: I don't think the Conservative Party is going to change this side of an election. Look, I'm not as close to the situation as I was when I was in the house. I just read news media and listen to electronic feeds and so on and have a look at what's on the internet as the rest of you do. And my reading of the situation is that the government isn't in any meaningful sense governing. It's not really addressing issues. The schools bill was abandoned. The pursuit of new housing targets was dropped when there was a backbench protest against it the government is dropping policies that it thinks might be controversial. And at the first whiff of grape shot from MPs saying, we're not going to accept this, we're going to rebel against that, we're going to go into the division lobby against the other, the government seems to recoil from the fray. It doesn't want to be in the heat of the battle. And instead it says, right, well, we'll put that off. What's my interpretation of matters? I think that Rishi Sunak probably wants to try to get on top of inflation over the next year or so and see if he can slash the rate of inflation, a rate of inflation, I may say, which has been caused very considerably by the extraordinarily misguided and industrially inept policies of his own predecessor. And I guess he feels that if he can get on top of inflation and re-establish some sort of economic stability, the punters might forgive him and the Conservative Party at the next election. Do I think that's very likely... I don't think it's very likely. There are no certainties in politics. The Tory party is a ruthless beast. It will do anything it can to stay in office. It's got a great appetite for power. My sense is that it's been in power for too long. It's run out of time. It's run out of ideas. It's run out of energy. It's run out of road. And I think it will soon be run out of office. So, you know, if you ask me, do I think the next government is more likely to be a Labour government or a Conservative government, I think the next government is more likely to be a Labour government. And the historic challenge for the Conservative Party, which I think it will meet, to be fair, I don't think it's finished, I don't think that, the historic challenge for the Conservative Party will be what it's always been when it's lost office. What do we learn from it? How do we reinvent ourselves? How do we adapt to the new challenges of society or the mores of the country. So I'm not one of those people who says, oh, the Conservative Party is finished for good. I think that's a very dangerous prediction. There used to be books written by quite serious high-minded academics in the 80s, Must Labour Lose? And titles analogous. The theme being, is Labour finished for good? And there were some people who thought... Almost on the basis of demographics, the changing makeup of the country, the decline of the industrial working class, and so on, that the Labour Party was destined forever to lose. And that was wrong. I don't take a kind of determinist view. I think that parties can recover and reshape, reform themselves. Labour has done it, the Conservatives have done it. I think the Conservative Party will probably do it again. But the Conservative Party has been in office for a very long time, and it has done very considerable harm, and it is high time that it was ejected from office sooner rather than later.
0: So I take it you support Labour and...?
1: <laughs> yes, I think I, I, would like to see, I would like to see a Labour government. I think it would be in the interests of the country for there to be a change. I think that the challenges that will face any incoming government will be immense. There are very real strains in the public finances. There is considerable indebtedness. There's the challenge of trying to secure global growth, as well as growth in this country. No country can act entirely alone. There are all sorts of forces at work. And I don't think that the next government, of whichever complexion, will find it easy. But I think it would be helpful to have a government that was obviously on the side of and busting a gut in terms of policy administration and commitment for the mass of the electorate. And I think the problem of the Conservative Party at the moment is that it has done a great deal of harm to people's living standards by the policies that it's pursued. And I'm afraid at the top it is populated heavily by people who have got very little experience of, let alone empathy with, people struggling to get by. It doesn't understand those people. And I think Keir Starmer has got a better understanding of those people than Rishi or his colleagues.
0: I'm going to go to a bit about Rishi's predecessor, just a little bit. Um, so at the moment, the chairman of the BBC, um, Richard Sharp, is quite notoriously embroiled in a cronyism scandal about his appointment by Boris Johnson. Do you think that Richard Sharp should resign as chairman of the BBC?
1: The truth is that I don't feel fully knowledgeable about the detail, and I think there is still some uncertainty about that. I know he has said, as I understand it from the news media today, that there was no conflict of interest. I think the answer to that, students, if I may say so, is ultimately that is for others to judge. He's entitled to a profession of innocence. Of course he's entitled to say that if he believes it to be true. If he doesn't think there's a conflict of interest, he's perfectly entitled to say so. But ultimately, others will judge whether there was. I think there are questions to answer. I think there are very serious questions to answer. Very serious questions for Boris Johnson who is a, a ghostly presence in all of our proceedings at all times, and very serious questions for the chairman of the BBC to answer. And I think that just trying to damp down the story by saying, there is no issue here, we move on, and Yabu sucks to the opposition for trying to stir it or for the media that wish to cover it. That won't wash. This is a big issue. This person, a very prominent donor to the Conservative Party and apparently very well disposed to and a friend of Boris Johnson, is said to have been involved in one way or another in helping him secure a very substantial financial facility and has become chairman of the BBC. Now, he may say that those two phenomena are wholly unrelated and there is nothing... That should be the cause of suspicion. I think you would accept that transparency is all. The facts have to be out there in relation to that matter and indeed in relation to the matter of Nadim Zahawi, the Conservative Party chairman who carelessly neglected to pay a few million pounds in tax.
0: Should he resign as chair of the Conservative Party?
1: Well, I'm sorry to say that I just don't think Nadim Zahawi has any credibility as chairman of the Conservative Party. And again, I should say to you, you will understand, students, that I knew these people because I worked with them in the House. Do I have any personal grudge against Nadim Zahawi? No, I always found him personable. We got on well. Um, He's an amiable character. He's a person of considerable ability. Uh, He was well regarded in some of his ministerial roles. But what has arisen is a big issue. And I think there is a huge question mark over him, And I think Nadim is probably experienced enough now to know that the story won't go away and simply threatening to use lawyers to close down newspapers that take an interest isn't going to be effective. The question is, did he negotiate with Revenue and Customs to solve his tax issues? while he was Chancellor of the Exchequer, with the Chancellor bearing overall responsibility for revenue and customs? If he did, there is a clear conflict of interests there. Did he, when he was interviewed, I think, on Sky some months ago, tell the truth when he said that his interests were all declared and there was no issue as far as his tax was concerned? Was it not the case that at that time the question of what he might or might not owe in tax was in play, was the subject of negotiation. I don't know for certain it was, but I asked that question. Can he square what he said in that interview with, I think, Gabe Burley, with what we now suspect? And was he open with the Prime Minister about his circumstances? Now, it's not for me to give a conclusive answer to those questions. But those questions do have to be answered and the Prime Minister has gone from a position of saying only a few days ago, last week, that Mr Zahawi had given a full account and explained the position and there was nothing further to be said on the matter to saying that there are clearly serious questions that need to be answered and he's asked his ethics advisor stroke investigator fully to probe the situation. So the situation has changed. Literally within the space of the week. If you ask me on balance, do I think Mr. Zahawi will be able to survive in government? And The honest answer is no. I don't think he will be able to do so.
0: Could the Conservative Party do anything to bring you back into the fold? Or are you resigned from it?
1: No, no. I left the Conservative Party on the night of the 22nd of June 2009 when I had the great good fortune and privilege to be elected... Speaker, and that was in conformity with the convention that the Speaker doesn't belong to, is independent of, owes no Obligation to and expresses no support for any political party I wasn't a member of any other party therefore, but you know I'm quite open about the fact that I would like to see a Labour government I think the Labour Party today is a very different party to that which I Saw when I first became involved in politics 40 years ago And if you ask me why would I like to see a Labour government, I think the Labour Party is much more economically responsible than it once was. I think it has an internationalist vision, which I share, as opposed to a little Englander outlook. And I think that, above all, the Labour Party is committed to a notion of social justice which I think should be at the core of public service. So that's why I would like to see a change of government. Would I be interested in going back into the Conservative Party? No, and in a spirit of self-knowledge, I ought just candidly to say to you, students, and to you, Christopher, not only do I not want to go back to the Conservative Party, the Conservative Party wouldn't remotely want it to go anywhere near it. (laughs) And I can reassure members of the Conservative Party that I have no intention of going anywhere near that party again.
0: Um, final question before I go to the floor for your guys' questions. Um, there have been issues across parties and sort of across politics more generally with bullying and harsh work environments. Why do you think that is, and is that just the nature of working in politics?
1: I think there can be a very highly charged atmosphere in the House. I think members are operating under great pressure in some cases don't have extensive experience of running an office, of employing staff and can get involved in conflict situations. If you ask me, students, did I sense during my 10 years as a speaker that bullying across the house service was an issue on any scale, the honest answer is that I didn't have the sense that it was an issue on any significant scale. And the staff representatives in the House, that is to say the staff trade unions, and the senior staff at the top of the House service, never said to me... You know, they do come to the Speaker all the time, you have meetings with senior officials, with trade union colleagues and on. they never said to me, Mr Speaker, there's a real issue of bullying in the House. So I didn't sense that there was. As far as I personally am concerned, because it was concluded that I had maltreated, a number of members of staff, I can say only this. Look, to err is human, we're all flawed, we all make mistakes. Do I claim that I got it right every time? I don't. Uh, What I do say is that... I was in the House for 22 years, I was never subject to investigation by the Parliamentary Standards Commissioner at any time in my 22 years in the House, which certainly is not something that, for example, Boris Johnson could claim, or a great many other people could claim. I was never investigated, let alone judged adversely, by the Parliamentary Standards Commissioner. I had fabulous relationships with people right across the House, very significant numbers of members of staff, whom I hugely esteemed and who appeared to think well of me. And in the speaker's office, which is quite a small office of about 10 people, I had people who worked for me and with me from day one, June the 22nd, 2009, until I stood down at the beginning of November 2019. There were people who worked with me uninterruptedly for 10 years. People leave, of course, people go and get other jobs, people move sector, people go abroad and so on, but I had other people who worked for me for eight years, for seven years, I had a number of people who worked for me for five years. I got on superbly with all of them. When I left office, three people came forward and said, "Ah." Mr. Burko maltreated me and we went through an extremely protracted and long-winded process. A great deal of effort was spent and time devoted to drawing up lists of witnesses, including into whether, for example, I had barked at somebody ten years previously. One of the allegations where the investigator refused to interview the witnesses. I mean, this is surreal, but it's true. One of the allegations was that I'd stared at somebody in a hostile way and I said to the investigator, forgive me, may I just ask when was this? Uh, well, I, I don't know, Mr. Birkhoff, but, uh, Well, during your period of office. And I said, well, I think I'd grasp that, but uh, sorry, when? And he, he said, well, he didn't know. So I said, well, can you tell me what was the subject matter? And he told me and as people who know me well will testify, I have many flaws, but I've got a pretty good memory. And I said, yes, I remember exactly that matter. It related to an absolute crusading passion of mine to establish the Speaker's Parliamentary Placement Scheme, a scheme whereby people of ability and commitment who cared about politics and wanted to work in the House but had no dosh at all, didn't, couldn't depend on the bank of mum and dad, I wanted to establish a scheme that would give those people a chance to work as paid interns, if you like, in the House, and I did establish that scheme. But there was some resistance to it from one or two officials for reasons that are too tedious to go into, but eventually, pretty quickly, it was set up. And we had two meetings of the House of Commons Commission at which it was discussed, and I happened to remember that one of them was in November 2010 and the other was in January 2011. And this chap didn't know that, didn't seem to think it mattered, and I said, yes, I remember exactly what matters were discussed, I remember that issue. You're saying, I stared at somebody in a hostile way. Yes, he said, my judgment is that you did. And I said, to him, forgive me, in your draft report, you don't quote any of the nine witnesses, the people who were present at that meeting, who are still alive, one subject has died. But nine are still alive and you could have interviewed them. And he said, "No, no, he didn't intend to interview those witnesses because as it was so long ago, they wouldn't remember. So I said, well, they certainly wouldn't remember something that didn't happen. But with great respect, your draft thesis is that it did happen. In that circumstance, I very politely suggest to you that the laws of natural justice would tend to dictate that you should at least ask the witnesses what they remember about this matter. I'm accused of staring not once, not momentarily, but fixedly and with hatred at a particular person. And I said, I did no such thing. And I challenge you to ask the witnesses. No, no, he didn't. He said, with great respect, Mr Berko, I'm running this investigation, not you. And I said, yes, you are. You're running it very badly. <laughs> So look, am I flawed? Do I make mistakes? Do I have I occasionally lost my rag over the years? You could probably see it in the chamber, with some discordant noise being made or some very badly behaved individual. But did I maltreat people? I don't believe I did. I tell you what I did do, students. I did set about reforming the House of Commons. I tried to deliver reform in the chamber with greater vitality and urgency of questioning, granting hundreds of urgent questions, which are now commonplace, but when I became Speaker they weren't, to make the process of political interrogation livelier and more topical, more relevant. I resolved to bring about change across the parliamentary estate. When I took up post as Speaker, we had a shooting gallery in Parliament, where you could go pistol shooting. But no nursery where MPs and staff could pay to place their kids to facilitate a better work-life balance, enable them to do their jobs as MPs whilst ensuring that their children were safe. And I resolved to change that. And By the time I finished, I'm very pleased to tell you, the shooting gallery had been closed down, but the nursery was an extremely thriving, well-attended facility, as it is to this day. And I resolved to ensure that we had a much more diverse set of people in the higher echelons of the House. I made five BAME appointments at senior levels in the House on merit, up against much opposition. I had to argue for the re- use of specialist recruitment consultants so that we could reach out into BAME communities, so we could reach out to audiences from which we would get more female applicants. And this was thought to be a rum business, as somebody said, be a rum business. Mr. Speaker, why do you feel the need to do this? And I said, because the House at the staff on the staff side is disproportionately, at the higher levels, white, male, middle class, and unrepresentative of the country that we're charged to represent. And I want to make the House more diverse. But do I have scars on my back from some of those battles? I do. There was resistance. And I insisted, as the elected speaker, on doing it my way, just as I insisted that I would chair the Youth Parliament every year for ten years, and I insisted on going to the Youth Parliament's conference, if they wanted me, which, fortunately for me, they did, every year, to talk to them. And I had a very senior member come up to me, student's florid of face, flecks of spittle coming off his face at mine, and he said to me, Mr Speaker, and I said, yes. He said, I understand that you intend to chair the proceedings of the UK Youth Parliament in weeks to come. And I said, yes, that's absolutely right. uh, Proceedings, Mr Speaker, to which I am virulently opposed. And I said, yes, uh, I'm perfectly well aware that you're opposed to those proceedings. Frankly, anybody with a 50-mile radius of the House of Commons would, would have been well aware of the opposition of this character, because he'd spoken in the debate against allowing the Youth Parliament to come to Westminster. And I said, yes, but with great respect, that matter was debated was debated just before I became Speaker, and the House resolved that we would invite the Youth Parliament once a year. Yes, he said, but it's not necessary for you to chair the proceedings, sanctifying these proceedings, Mr Speaker, with the authority of your office. And I said, it may not be necessary in your judgment, but it is in mine. I intend to chair the proceedings of the Youth Parliament for two reasons. First, I admit I will enjoy doing so. Secondly, what better signal of welcome an inclusion could one offer to those young people than for the speaker to bother to turn up and sit there from start to finish. I make no criticism of my predecessor, Christopher, who, who is no longer with us and can't defend himself. My predecessor, Michael Martin, was a Scottish MP and he liked to be in his constituency on a Friday, which I absolutely understand. That was his main home. That's where he wanted to be. And... So he wasn't intending to chair the proceedings, he was going to let the Deputy Speaker, Sir Alan Hazlehurst at the time, chair the proceedings. I decided when I became Speaker, I'm going to take this over. And I chaired the proceedings. This complaining member, who was positively volcanic in his rage, said to me, you mark my words, Mr Speaker. If you chair the proceedings of the Youth Parliament, it will be a disaster. At the very least, he said, I remember it to this day, I remember exactly where he was standing. He said, at the very least, chewing gum will be left all over the chamber. (laughs) And at the worst, he said, pen knives will be used. (laughs) And damage will be inflicted on these benches, which I love. And I said to him, I respect your right to your point of view and for being direct with me. But I do not respect the calumny and vituperation that you're lobbying in the direction of the young people. And I make three predictions to you. They'll be proud to come, they'll speak well and they'll behave a damn sight better than we do. And if I may say so, Christopher, I say this in support of the Youth Parliament, of whom I became a champion and and who were very kind to me. I say this in their support, not mine. I was right on all three counts. So the point that I'm making here is that, as somebody once said to me, a very experienced former leader of the House, said to me, John, you can either be a reforming speaker or you can be an uncontroversial speaker, but you cannot be both. And I said to him, I intend, as I said in my campaign, to bring about change in this place. And if that means ruffling some feathers and taking on some vested interests, so be it. I didn't want to be speaker, just so I could say to my children, and God willing, one day my grandchildren, look, I served as speaker. I actually wanted to make a difference. And I tried to do so, but I was up against a minority of very determined and reactionary forces. And for fighting against those reactionary forces, I have not apologised, I do not apologise, and I will not apologise. And as far as I'm concerned, those people, and like it or lump it.
0: As a final quick question, which I'm going to ask all the people that come to the Union this term, what is a book or a movie that you would recommend?
1: The book I enjoyed most was A Tale of Two Cities by Dickens. It's my favourite Dickens novel. There are lots of other books I could recommend, but I think that's the one I'd go with. If you ask me my favourite, Film, well, I fear I'm going to be cheeky and abuse my position and say I'd like to name two. The two films I'd like to name are a Clint Eastwood film, which you may or may not have seen, called Pale Rider, which is a favourite film of mine. I see nodding from one of the unit officers in the front row. It's a fantastic film. It's a bit of a tearjerker. I have a reputation in my family in watching sort of romantic films for welling up. I do tend to get quite emotional, and my wife and sometimes my kids tease me about it. You may not think that I'm that sort of person, but I am actually quite a romantic type, and if there's a story of goodies versus baddies, you know, I like to see the goodies win. Pale Rider is a wonderful film, but it's very, very tough. I think my favorite film, as measured by the number of times I've watched it, probably to the incomprehension of my family, is a film called The Gathering Storm. And The Gathering Storm, students, is a film about Churchill in the wilderness years in the 1930s when he was warning about German rearmament. And he was out of office and largely loathed by the conservative establishment and treated very badly by them, by Chamberlain and by Stanley Baldwin. I mean, Churchill could give as good as he got, by the way. I mean, he did once say about Baldwin, I don't wish to be unkind or discourteous or uncharitable uh, about Stanley Baldwin. I don't bear him personal ill will. It's just that, upon the whole, I think it would have been better for the world uh, if he had never been born. (laughs) But anyway, that film, The Gathering Storm, Albert Finney plays Churchill, and Vanessa Redgrave plays Clemmie, his wife. And it's a wonderful film, and at the end... Anyway, I shouldn't really tell you what the end is, but there's a positive ending of it from Churchill's point of view and from the point of view of the future direction of the country. It's also got wonderful moments of good humour. My wife always reminds me that it is, of course, a film, so there's quite a lot of creative license. It's not the case that every single scene is an exact reflection of what happened. But there's quite a lot, I think, that did happen in that family and in British politics at the time that is very accurately portrayed. And, you know, it's an immensely stimulating film, and it's not very long. I think it's about an hour and 34 minutes, and it's brilliantly acted. And I think the... probably the... I think probably the most amusing scene is when Churchill is dictating a letter to his wife, who is away on a long sojourn across Africa and elsewhere, and the butler, Inches, played by Ronnie Barker, comes in and says... Excuse me, sir, there's a telephone call. Out, Inches, I'm busy. It's extremely urgent, sir. And Churchill says, oh, gosh, you're the most irritating clod that ever trod the face of the earth, Inches. And Inches sort of says, well, no need to be discourteous. Anyway, you can tell Churchill's really annoyed. And he, he says, I'm in the middle of dictating a letter to my wife, Inches, have you no sensitivity? He's in a really bad mood. Anyway, he eventually says, who is it? <laughs> and the butler, Ronnie Barker, says, it's Major Sankey, sir. And the truth is, this guy, this clod pole, is on the phone to give Churchill a hard time at the request of the Conservative whips. And Churchill says, who is he? And the butler says, he's your local Conservative Association chairman, sir. So Churchill clearly hasn't got the slightest idea who Major Sankey is. And he goes out of the room and he comes back and he's in a very foul mood and he blames it all on Baldwin quite accurately. Baldwin has basically said to the Tory whips, get in touch with Churchill's association and get them to stir it up a bit and tell them they're unhappy with him for rebelling against government policy and so on. I mean, it's an absolutely brilliant film. So if I haven't bored you rigid by the idea, I suggest you look at it.
0: Can we once again thank John for joining us?